Yeah, it's great to be back this morning. I'm a little more awake, uh, so that's good than I was last night. Um, it's some breaking news. Uh, Laura and I have decided to leave Ireland. We're going to be uh, house parents at, uh, over here at the University. So, yeah, I, I, we haven't talked about it yet, but I just I know that's what we need to do. That was uh, very inspiring, so it's great to hear. But uh, So we talked last night a little bit about um, barriers that maybe that keep us from seeing the harvest. And we're going to expand on that just a little bit and talk about this morning what our response should be to the harvest. But as we get started, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord and pray. Uh, yeah, Father, it's a, it's a beautiful day and, and we're very thankful. Thankful to be able to come and to worship you. Thankful that you uh, call us that you summon us here as your children. And we have such a privilege to sing praises, such a privilege that your the word has been given to us, and, and we can hear you speaking through it. So, Father, again, we pray that you'll, you'll meet with us and that you will be our teacher, that you will draw us in faith toward your heart, and that we will love the harvest that's before us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we live in Wexford, Ireland, which is in the sunny southeast, which is a misnomer, but relative term. But we do live in Wexford, Ireland, which is in the southeast of the Republic. It's a town of about 20,000. And a lot of tourists come to Wexford, and it has a dedicated main street, you know, pedestrian-only kind of area. If you walk down Main Street, I was... um, there's just tons of people flowing around. It's, it's, really, it's a really kind of an exciting feel. There's a coffee shop called O'Brien's there on Main Street that we like to go to. And um, you can sit and, and drink your coffee and you know, people are coming and going. I was working on the sermons for this uh, conference and uh, escaped down to the coffee house and uh, to O'Brien's and was sitting there and it happened to be Valentine's Day. And so the kids were on midterm break from school, so all the high schoolers were out in the town, and it was a sunny day, which we had not had in quite a while. And the, the coffee shop was full of people. And this older gentleman uh, came through with his tray, and he's just kind of standing there. There was nowhere to, nowhere to sit, and I was actually sitting at a, a little table over in the corner, that, but it had four seats. I was like, yeah, you know, come sit with me. And so he came and sat, and we talked for maybe an hour about different things, and it's a great thing about being an American in a place like that is people are very intrigued you know, while you're there, and so it's a real easy opening to conversation. So I talked to him for a pretty good while, and um, you know, obviously different worldviews were coming out. We we're talking about American politics and Irish politics, and uh, talking about the world that he's a banker or something like something financial. And uh, I reflected on that later. How, would, how do I respond to him? I, I felt like I'd done this tremendous leap of faith by even bringing up something spiritual in the conversation. But how should I view him? How should I think about him? But even as I walked out the coffee shop that day, it would be pretty common. You turn left and the shops along Main Street there, and you kind of go right by, uh, by the Bullring Market Square, and you'll pass the one-breath saxophone player is generally right down that direction. There's a Romanian guy that has one leg that sits and begs on the uh, corner there. 
I tried to start up a conversation with him, but he doesn't speak English. So you pass by him, and, and like I said, the teens are out. People are out on the town shopping, and it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. And we talked talk about last night what it means to actually see these people and see that there is a harvest there. And some of the reasons why that might, we might not do that. But the question that, that continues to flow in my mind and one that I want you to consider as we look at the scriptures in a minute is how are we to respond once we are, begin to address the barriers that before us to be able to see the world as a harvest field, how are we to move forward and to respond? If you look over in the day's passage, it's Matthew 9. Gospel Matthew chapter 9. We're going to read verses 35 through 38. It's another very well-known passage where Jesus talks about the harvest. So starting in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So how are we how are we to respond? So three um, areas of response I want to consider three uh, positions we are to take. One is to respond with the habit of reflection. The habit of reflection. With the posture of compassion. And with a strategy of submission. A habit of reflection, a posture of compassion, and a strategy of submission. So how should we respond? I believe that our, our response to the, to the harvest it's going to hinge on understanding, a deep understanding, that when Jesus came out and he, and he saw the crowds, the deep understanding that we, we were the crowd. I'm going to flesh that out just a little bit. We were the crowd. Now today's message hinges around one word in this uh, passage, the word compassion. The word compassion. We think of compassion, I think of compassion, some versions may say, he had pity on them. He felt sorry for them. But really, as one preacher says, um, those words illustrate the poverty of our English language. Um, for those of you who like this sort of thing, the Greek, uh, the Greek there is uh, based on a, a, a Greek noun, uh, splanknon. And it means the inward parts, the bowels, the hearts, the lungs. Okay, we're not talking about a cognitive pity. We are talking about a deep, rising, emotional feeling. Deep emotion, deep passion, deep compassion. Okay, when Jesus looked at the crowds, he had a deep compassion for them. It's not the movie, Jesus. We're doing a study on our home group, one of our home groups that I go to in, in Ireland. We're doing a study through John right now and... The study's great. It's a read, mark, and learn study, which are really good. 
And, but the, one of the people in this, the ladies in the study has a video series of John, and she brings the video, and we watch the video. And it's very true to the scripture. But the Jesus is pretty typical. He's somewhere between an Italian Renaissance painting and a Shakespearean actor and a very sappy kind of kind Jesus. You know, American movie Jesus, Italian Renaissance Jesus is kind of a blend in there. I think you know the, you know, he's always very meek and mild. But then he speaks as, Hither, my disciples, considereth thou the harvest. You know, and you're like, what in tarnation is that? This is not the Jesus that we find in the scriptures. Okay? This Jesus is weeping for the harvest. He's weeping for the lost people. It's a deep, emotional, passionate Jesus that we find. I really believe that our, I mean deeply believe that that our ability to respond to the harvest has its foundational underlying here in the truth that we have been recipients of this compassion. We have been recipients of this compassion. Our source of power, our motive for missions is deeply hinged on the idea and the understanding that we have experienced the compassion of Jesus in our own life. It is the source. That understanding is the source. Guilt is not a source for missions. Duty is not a source for missions. Manipulation is not a source of power for missions, for reaching the lost. None of those things work. Now, as a parent of teens, I do freely admit, guilt does work on the short term. Okay, And I'm not saying that maybe you shouldn't try that on occasion. But... When it comes to sharing the, the, the transformative message of the gospel to lost people, guilt and duty are poor motivators at best. The source of power that we must understand is that we have received the compassion of Jesus. So what does that mean? Let's flesh it out that we are part of the crowd. I, I um, was watching a Netflix. We have Netflix Ireland. It's a little different than the U.S. You don't have all the same options, but... I'll say movies, it's licensing stuff, I think. But So I really like the crime drama stuff, and the British stuff is great. So I've watched every British crime drama series that Netflix has. You know, I've watched them all. They're, they're great. You really, they're a little different than the American stuff, but it's really good. And so now I'm, I'm struggling because I've watched them all. And so um, I foolishly just listened to my son Eli, who has different tastes in, in what he watches, but he's trying to get me to watch something about zombies, waking the dead or walking dead or something like that. No, I don't think I can do that. But there was another one on there. You know, I read a lot of sci-fi, fantasy stuff. And, oh, it's, this one is supernatural. That sounds, that sounds good. I might give that a shot. So I loaded it up, and uh, it's actually a, more of a horror series. So I didn't even make it through the first episode. But, but so there's two brothers, and they go out hunting demon things or whatever. And, uh, but it kind of sets up the scene for this one episode, and there's a man driving down the road, and there's a woman standing next to the road out in the middle of nowhere. So he offers her a lift, and she gets in, and he takes her, and she says, where do you live? And he takes her, and it's this abandoned home. And then she disappears out of the car, and, you know, and he's, you know, I'm already about to, and, uh, <laughs> you know, and, but then, so he walks around, he looks, he doesn't see her, doesn't see her. He gets back in the car, and he looks up in the mirror, and she's in the back seat. Well, that's it right there, you know. <laughs> But what he sees, and then what follows, is when he looks in the mirror, he sees her, he sees death. That's what he sees. 
He looks in the mirror and he sees death. And I think that's the place that we need to start in understanding that we have been recipients of compassion. That when we sit and we reflect, we reflect, we need to understand that when it relates to God, we look in the mirror and we see death. That's what we saw. It's a very important contrast to understand. To understand the wondrous good news of the gospel is to understand the gospel contains bad news. Okay? The gospel contains bad news. We, we desperately need to understand this. Think about uh, Romans 3. You can flip over there. I'll read a little bit. Or Paul kind of uh, puts this in a, in, a, in a great way. For the Romans, just picking up... Uh, I guess this would be the last half of verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No one. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the picture of us without Jesus. That's the picture of us without Jesus. We smelled like death and we looked like death. And that kind of brings the contrast in as we begin to consider the good news. And for me, it's very important that we understand that, that God didn't just tweak us into the kingdom, guys. We didn't come to God in pretty good shape. Maybe just needed to trim here, you know, a nip, a tuck, or whatever. That's not what happened. You know, in theology, it's called rebirth. You know, you go back to go and start over. You know, a total redo. A rebirth happened. It's important to understand that Jesus didn't just tweak us. We didn't come with a lot of good stuff to offer. Okay? We came with nothing. Worthless. Dead in our trespasses. We came. Jesus resurrected dead people. We had nothing to offer. I think that's very important for us to understand. And then to think about the other half. There's a good half. I always love it. But, but God. There's a but God here, which is it's just a great two words. But God. That's not the end of the story, guys. But God. He paid for it. Jesus came. He was incarnate. He took our sin. He took our hate. He took our lust, our gossip. He took all of it. Every bit of it. He bore it on Himself to the cross and killed it all. That's not all he did, because that in and of itself, that in and of itself that Jesus just kind of took our sin isn't actually good news. It sounds like good news, but it's not. Because what that means is Jesus kind of took our sin, he just got us back to clean, and then we get to try again. Right? That's not good news, guys. If, Je if all Jesus did, that's why I uh, kind of hate the idea of, well, I just kind of accepted Jesus, he died on the cross for my sins. That's not the gospel. It's part of the gospel, but it's not the whole gospel. If that's all he did was get me back to the starting line, I'm toast. Okay? Because I can't even make it out of here without sinning. Jesus did a whole lot more than that. Okay? Not only did, does he pay for our sins, but then he gives us. He 
He gave. Not only did He pay, He gave. All of His righteous works, all of His righteous deeds are given to us. So that when God looks at you, when He looks at me, He sees Jesus. He sees Jesus. Now, yeah, that's a, it's a theological concept. You've probably all heard it before. Double imputation, you know. He, he takes our sin and gives us His righteousness. And that's a theological concept that you may hear fairly often. But what we need to do is we need to apprehend the reality of that concept at a deep level where it affects who we are and it transforms us. The result of this legal transaction, if you will, is that we become children of God. The Father looks at us, He sees Jesus. We are God's children now. And this is transformative stuff. It's not something that just happened back then. It's said and done with, and now we're on our own. That's not the way it is. We are the beloved children of God. A couple passages here. I'll just read them to you. You don't have to... to, uh, to uh, Turn to him. I don't know if I can find them. Ephesians 3. Starting with verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses all knowledge. How much does Jesus love us right now? In your sin, struggling to love your wives, struggling to be good parents, Struggling to not have an extreme moral failure. How much does Jesus love you right now? I don't know. It's beyond all comprehension. Okay? It's beyond all comprehension. Jesus loves you that much. It's, well, is God angry at you right now because you're a sinner? Is He wrathful? Is He going to get you? No. It's just not true. It's not. You're a beloved children of God. The great thing, and this is, I think, being... I have an adult child at college, and I'm really wrestling with this right now, is the idea of what it means to love her. And the discipline comes into that. As a loving father, he does. He's not going to let us run after idols and run after sin. He's going to reach in and, and drag us kicking and screaming back to his lap. Say, I love you. You can't go after those idols. It may be suffering that he brings, but it's never out of wrath. It's always out of love. Our father loves us. Beyond comprehension, beyond knowledge. And if that's the only point we get to, then that's okay. Our Father loves us beyond comprehension, beyond all knowledge. And that is the root of anything we're going to do. Everywhere we go, any form of obedience, be it missions, be it anything, that is the root. This summer I had a really hard time with depression. I've been taking, I've been taking depression meds since Moby Dick was a minna. And uh, I think the doctor took me out of the nursery and they started feeding, you know, something to me. I don't know. It's just part of my fallen condition. I recognize that we're physically broken. And God's going to heal that one day. 
You know, and it's part of who I am, and, it, and it, it's hard. I had a really hard season this summer. I had some medicine problems that they fixed, which was helpful. But you know what really helped me is I just have a couple of places that I go, a couple of preachers that I know, and every sermon they preach is about the love of God. They let other people do the other stuff. You know, this is all they're going to preach is about the love of God. And I could have listened to a sermon that told me how I needed to do better and how I needed to perform better and walk better, but that's not transformative. That's not going to pull me up. But what really puts my heart on fire and in love with Jesus is to hear that He loves me. As in 1 John says, we love because Jesus loved us. That's why we love. Because He loved us. And the degree that we understand that Jesus loves us is the degree that we will love. And if you find yourself like me, not loving then the, the problem is not that we're not doing a good job loving. The problem is that we've lost our connection with the love of God for us. And that flows into... Now, the good news is the first point's the longest one, guys. Okay. A couple other points are fairly very simple. We talk about... Because that was the whole idea of having a habit of reflection. Because that makes sense now. A habit of reflection informs and empowers our response. We find ourselves not in love with the lost. We need to go back and reflect again on what is true. Right. The second one is really having a posture of compassion. Verse thirty-six. Jesus looked out of them. He saw. He saw the harvest, and he, he, they were harassed. They harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. I think the image. And I was talking to the Irish, the Irish pastor Jonathan about this last week. So the image of sheep is lost on Americans in general. The metaphor is lost on us. Because have you seen a sheep lately? Ain't, ain't no sheep around here. You know? So the whole metaphor, we had, you know, I heard a guy from New, New, Zing, New Zealand, Ian Bain, came and preached it at our church one time and you know, they have a lot of sheep and just his being able to flesh out the metaphor was just, wow, that was, that really connected me with what Jesus was saying. You know, it's really good. Now, Ireland, we are, we are up to our eyeballs in sheep. Uh, sheep uh, God told me sheep is the poor man's cow. Because sheep, you don't have to build barns or anything. You just go in the pen. And they are dumb. Um, which is, the bad news is that Jesus said, you know, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us is trying to, we're all sheep. That's the bad news. But, um, so Jesus looked and saw they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And a couple things about that. One, harassed and helpless, sheep without a shepherd is a... Is a it's kind of a phrase that would be used to the scriptures to indicate the people that are without leaders, that are hopeless because they have no leaders. And you probably develop that really well into a call for leadership and you know, men to step up into leadership and women to lead the children to whatever to, put, to have leaders for, for the flock. I think that's a great place to go. We're not going there. Um, we're talking about missions. Okay? We're talking about missions. We, uh, there's a lady in our church uh, who's... Uh, Eva, she's from, she's from Irish, she's Irish, she's from, from Inniscorthy, just up the road. And she has a brother that has a farm, and he raises sheep, and he, I think he raises cows, and he raises some other stuff. And uh, I told Eva when we first moved in, let me know when they shear the sheep. Because I want to take, you know, the boys up and let them just, you know, experience that. It would be a great experience to shear the sheep, you know, see the sheep be sheared. And we had a couple of lads from the States, actually, that were over with us, uh, two of Eli's friends. So we had, you know, the three 16, 17-year-olds. And so she called one morning and said, hey, today's the day. He's shearing the sheep. Said, okay. So we got in the car. We drove 25 minutes up the road. 
and, and, and got out. And he had the sheep in, in this big kind of middle-ish building in, in pens, and he would he'd bring out maybe ten of them, and then they would, they would shear them. And uh, most people in Ireland would hire somebody to shear their sheep. They don't shear them themselves. There's no money in the wool. Okay, they don't shear them for money. It's, it's, you barely break even on the money. The money in sheep farming is in the lambs, actually. You know, but they don't make any money on the wool. But they have to shear them. That's, that's, you know, what is the whole the whole process was great. If you if I give you the link, you can go to my go to YouTube and see Eli and uh, see these boys chasing the sheep because they had to they had to run around and catch the sheep and they had to drag the sheep over to the pad who's going to shear. Then they had to flip the sheep over. You know, it was quite an experience actually. And um, but you have to shear the sheep because what happens when you don't shear the sheep? is it just keeps getting fluffier and fluffier and bigger and bigger and bigger and nastier and nastier and nastier. And they're just, they're dumb as dirt, you know. And they, they'll go out, walk through the pasture, step in a hole, fall over, and they can't get up. They're just laying there. He said, what happens is the big birds come along and peck their eyes out. Yeah, like, ooh. They're just tremendously vulnerable, you know, and they die. They die. It's like, wow. I, I mean, I just would have never have guessed. What was happening? And this whole idea of a sheep that's being unshorn, that they're helpless, absolutely helpless. They can't do anything for themselves. And Jesus looked out with this deep bowel compassion at these people who were that helpless. Who were that helpless. How do we look at how do we look at the world around us? Um, do we see them as harassed and helpless as sheep without a shepherd? I think there's a couple of grids that maybe we're struggling with, and it does relate a little bit to what we talked about last night and how we see the harvest. But there are a couple of grids. I think we have a real tendency as Americans, and I think every culture does this, to actually send us to cross-cultural training to try to unravel some of these strands before we went to Ireland, but that we have a cultural grid that we look through, a screen, a filter when we look at the world, and we as Americans look through a certain set of values when we look at the world. Which is a, one reason I think short-term trips are just tremendously helpful in shaping our worldview and helping us understand what's really out there. Because we have these, these grids that we look through. And, they, and it probably varies depending on who you are and where you are in the country, but American values are fairly consistent. You know, We would have, have real values of individuality, of individual success, our values of maybe community might be different than other cultures. We'd have values of what success looks like that are very much part of who we are as a culture. You know? And oftentimes we find that, that we are looking through those and we are evaluating what's out there based upon those values. We may look at the guy who dresses well and is doing well at his job and not see him as helpless and harassed as sheep without a shepherd. But yet, look at the one-legged Romanian. He's definitely helpless and harassed when that sheep was without a shepherd. You know, we look through a set of values, and I think it really takes the Spirit of God to come in and help begin to, to pull the curtains back a little bit and help us to have a vision of, of, of compassion as we look at the world. A vision of compassion as we look at the world. It's really easy to say, like we said last night, these folks... If they just had a better political system, if they had a better racial system, a better whatever, they would be fixed and they would be okay. They might even be worthy of the gospel at that point, which is, you know, oh, you know. But we just 
understanding that we have a value system and a cultural grid that we look through as we evaluate cultures. And ask, let's ask the Spirit to kind of break that down. Because what, what I want us to do, I think what the Bible is, what Jesus is trying to orient the disciples to, is to look out and to see people as harassed and helpless. And so that we see this flow from, we have experienced the compassion of God, and we are deeply moved and transformed, until so we can come and we can look with these new eyes of a transformed, beloved of God person, and see the people that really need what we have. And have a vision, a posture toward lost people, not of condemnation, but of compassion. Not of condemnation, but of compassion. Last point is um, a strategy of submission. Verse 38. That's 37. Then he said to the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Of all the possible responses Jesus could have picked, he looked out at the harvest with this deep, weeping, emotive place. And he looked out at them and he said, Therefore pray. Therefore pray. Now we'll sideline point out that starting in the next chapter he, he commissions them and sends them all out two by two. Okay? So, so it didn't stop at prayer. But he says, therefore pray. Of all the responses he could have picked, he said, therefore pray. Why that response? Why not be a little more directive? Why not, you know, okay, we need to get a plan together and a strategy to go. This, we don't have time for prayer. We don't have time for the, the need is great. We need to go. Why does he say, therefore pray? In a book, um, Heart of a Servant Leader, it's, it's a collection of letters by Jack Miller who founded our mission agency, World Harvest, that his daughter put together posthumously. Jack had died, so she didn't put it together after she died. But yeah, you got, you got what I said. But she put the letters together. It's letters that he had written to missionaries, to pastors, to people. And it's a, a tremendous resource. It's a great book uh, for anybody on how, because Jack is working out what the implications of the gospel are to this area. And it's... There's a section on conflict. There's a section on encouragement for sinners. Different sections. You know, it's really good. And there's one section in there that, or one letter in there, where he's writing to missionaries in Ireland. Because Ireland was the second field of war harvest, so it goes back a long way. And he's writing to this particular missionary, and he says, whatever the guy's name was, I don't remember, but he says, look, I am convinced that nothing of significance is going to happen in the country until you begin to lead the way in prayer. Nothing of significance will happen. So what happens when Steve doesn't pray? What happens when Steve doesn't pray? Well, I'll tell you what that means. It means that Steve is self-dependent. When I'm not praying, I am self-dependent. I have no desire to fellowship with God. My faith rests more on my own efforts than on God's power. I'm denying God's love for me. I'm denying His power. I'm denying His goodness, denying His grace. I'm denying His reality. And in fact, I am doing what the younger son did and the prodigal son. I'm spitting in the face of God, raising my hand and shaking in 
in uh, I declaring my independence from the authority of God in my life when I don't pray and I struggle to pray. That's what I'm doing. Uh, years ago, I read the biography of George Mueller. If anyone's ever read George Mueller, um, it reads like fiction. Okay, it really does. You read George Mueller, and you're like, this is not real. This is like from another uh, planet or something. I think the assessment in the end was, and George Mueller lived in the 19th century. You know, he started orphanages. In the end, um, he raised the equivalent of 150 million for uh, for the orphanages. He he had orphanages for 10,000 kids, 117 schools that served 120,000 kids, and he never asked anyone for money. When there was a need before George Mueller, he prayed. It's a great story. You pick up the biography. I don't know if they have it on the table. Pick it up at the library. There's lots of them that have been done or get on the Internet. It's just absolutely amazing to really believe that God is real, that He's good, and that He loves us, and that He desires to answer prayer, and that He will do it, is just, it's just amazing. And He will. So what happens when we do pray? When we do pray, we, we're acknowledging that God is God, and we are not. It's an act of worship. It's lifting Him up. Saying, you are God, and we love you. It expresses belief and dependence in Him. It expresses our acceptance that He is powerful, He is sovereign, and can change things and will change things. I, I just feel like about half the time, I feel like God doesn't exist. The other half the time, I feel like if He does exist, then He's not good. And the other half the time, if He does exist and He is good, He just don't care. And all those sin. They're all wrong. These are the places of struggle. This is where Satan is coming in with this insidious you know, you're really not worthy to be loved of God. You know, if you were better, he would answer your prayers. He, he would love you then. It's just not true. John Piper says in a sermon, a related sermon to this, or actually on this passage, he, uh, he says that um, he's kind of interacting with this idea. Why did Jesus pick prayer as the response? And he says, because we can, it's just to understand that there will be no movement of missions until there's a movement of prayer. And if you want to know, you know, is there going to be a movement of missions? When we are overcome by prayer, when the church itself is giving itself to prayer, then you will see tremendous things happening in missions. Oh, this is a great point. So think about your response in, in those ways. Think about how what it means to be reflective of your position in Christ, what Jesus has done, and let that be transformative in your life. If it doesn't stir your heart, and sometimes the only prayer I can come up with is from Galatians, it's in the NIV, in the very first couple of verses of Galatians. Paul talks about how, how Jesus came and rescued us from the domain of sin, from this evil age. He rescued us. That's a great word. Because sometimes the only prayer I can come up with is, God, could you please rescue me again? And that's about as much as I can get out. And He always does. He's always faithful to do it. He always is. 
So let's, let's have those postures of response. Let's think about having a reflective habit of where we are, who we are in Jesus. And a compassionate, let that flow into a compassionate vision for the harvest. Okay, let it flow into that. And let's adopt. Can we adopt a strategy of submitting ourselves in prayer to our Father? Of pouring ourselves out in prayer to our Father? Um, I want you to join me in something. I want you to join me and I have this vision um, for, for this church, for Cross Creek. A vision that, that the gospel will so permeate you guys. It will so permeate you that you are so transformed that we're willing to abandon ourselves and our resources to the kingdom. We're willing to weep for the lost. Briarwood looks down here and goes, how can that small congregation give so much to missions? That doesn't make sense. How do they do that? Tom Cheely will be looking for another job. And if this church has a reputation, a reputation, that if you want something prayed for, you go to Cross Creek. Those people got a connection with Jesus. A vision for this church. And I, I, it's one of my problems, you know, dealing with adult children, I, it, it, learning to parent adult children, even my little children, is, is trying to get them to have a greater vision for their life than, than what the culture is offering them. You know? And I want you guys to have a greater vision for the kingdom than sometimes what the church culture is offering you. Than what, the, what, what our culture is offering you is should be okay. A greater vision of God. That you're going more, that you're praying more, and that you're giving more. And that's your reputation. People say, this church loves lost people. This church does. And we pour out ourselves. The Chris, he, he's beside himself with anger because he can't get anybody here to worship because you're all out in the world loving lost people. You're down at, down at the house and you're working. He's like, guys, it's Sabbath. It's Sunday. Come on. We've got to worship together. You've got to chill out. Just rest. I've got to preach a whole sermon series on rest to get you to calm down. Okay? A vision. Have a vision for this church that's that big. You know? It's that big that you can give. Um, that white card I didn't bring. It. Take that white card and give. You know, give to the work of missions. You know, I know I can list them off. Missionaries waiting to go on the field right now, and they have to raise support. You know, and they're pleading with God for it. I talked to a college kid at Covenant yesterday who would love to come to Ireland for the uh, uh, World Harvest as an internship program, uh, eight weeks in the summer for college kids. He'd love to come to Ireland. It's like the money. Oh, I got to raise how much money? And I said, look, I said, look, God's got all the money in the world. That's the good news. Bad news is all somebody else is, is stewarding it right now. But God's got all the money in the world, you know. You know, it's all out there. PCA's got more resources than we know what to do with. You know, we just need to orient them toward the work of the kingdom. You know, this college kid needs to be in Ireland this summer, working with other college kids that are Irish, learning what the gospel is somewhere in the world. That's where he needs to be, and I'm praying that God will provide that for him. So, well, guys, thanks for letting us come. Um, we love you guys, and uh, we only have four or five churches, okay? You're not one of a hundred for us. We're not roaming the country looking, you know, trying to make everybody happy. You know, we really desire to get to know you, for you to be involved in our ministry. Do not be afraid to sign up. Do not be afraid to call us, to email us, you know, to come and visit us. 
maybe. You know, it's just, I mean, it's you know, limited what we can do there. But come and see us, you know, if you come in Ireland. That's great. But um, we are very thankful for all of your prayers. Thankful that you support us so faithfully. Okay, we could not be there without it. We could not. So thank you, guys. Let me pray. Um, again, Father, thank you for your love for us. Uh, Father, I need that truth to resonate in my heart because I, I forget so easily. I'm a very forgetful saint. Father, I need you to, uh, your spirit to work in us, to let us really just uh, soak on these things and let them be transformative. Let this church have that reputation of being a church that is so in love with you that they love the lost. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.